for some time, and this is a classic case in point that justifies why we're doing this. John Piper, speaking of the Psalms, being the main songbook of the early church, says they are designed by God to awaken in us and express and shape the thoughts and feelings of Jesus' disciples. That's you and I. That's us. We learn from the Psalms, in other words, he goes on to say, how to think about discouragement and guilt. We learn how to feel in times of discouragement, in times of horrible regret. The Psalms show us how to be discouraged well, in other words, and how to regret well. What do we do? when we look at our lives and there are these emotions and thoughts and maybe right judgments of regret, discouragement, discontent, sin. The Psalms help us to understand how to do that. Others are are saying this. I've got a book by Donald um, Whitney, a wonderful man who understands the spiritual life, and he's written a book entitled Praying the Bible. And he has some quotes in there. One of them I thought interesting because we're going to be looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, The Psalms are given us to this end that we may learn to pray them in the name of Jesus. They're meant for us, just like they were originally inspired words of people back to God, They are meant forever for the church to be prayed back to God even today. So my prayer is, and for myself and for us all, is that we might form that kind of habit of using these psalms in our daily devotions and prayers, and certainly, and we continue to do so in our corporate times of of worship. Well, uh, this was not David's... uh, first response to sin in his own life. This psalm, you might say, starts with the historic situation. You would find that in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to go there, but you know how 2 Samuel 11 opens. It was the time when kings go to war, but David is in Jerusalem on his roof, and he looks and he sees Bathsheba. And we know something of the this kind of landslide, this catastrophe of events that follows where uh, he asks for her, or you might say demands her. She is brought. There is adultery, sexual immorality. There is the conception of a child within her. There is later, as that truth becomes known to David, he plots and covers up. He is deceptive. Ultimately, he in essence commits murder against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Uh, he remain, Now keep in mind, it is only when Nathan comes, the prophet, and in a parable, David discloses that he is the one guilty, and Nathan, the prophet, says, you are the man, you are the one that God convicts him of the sin. In other words, David walked probably close to a full calendar year just because of the amount of time it takes for a child to be born in unrepentance. 
the king of Israel, the one with whom there was a covenant made, David the king. And so Nathan has come and God gives power to Nathan's words and David is broken and this psalm is the result. As we launch into this, I'm going to structure three points around three main words. The first, I'm going to use it as an appeal. Uh, the second is the idea, is not the idea, but it's the word confession. And then the third is faith. And so I want to spend time for a moment in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, and we're going to talk about the fact that that my sin and your sin has made us totally unfit in and of ourselves for a relationship with the living God. Therefore, to be saved, I must appeal to the Lord based on His character, based on God's character. And that's exactly what David does. And this is fascinating and it's very encouraging, as a matter of fact. Look at how David speaks and prays in, in this psalm. The prayers, these imperatives, they are based on the name and on the character of God. And I'll show you that. Uh, twice you'll see a phrase, according to, and there are three very important qualities or attributes of God, not David, but of God that he is appealing to. On this basis, you might say on this foundation, Lord, I come to you and appeal to you. And the first is in the very first two words, have mercy on me, O God. That's a trait, that's an attribute of God, the God who is merciful who has compassion. It is undeserved, unmerited favor. And David says, on that basis, because of who you are, I will come. I must come. And so he has that understanding of God. We move uh, quickly to the second one. And it is this, still in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, what? According to your... And here, that is that wonderful Old Testament word. It is the Hebrew word, chesed. And it is, it gets, it's not always easy to define, but the ESV here does a good job with two words. It is the combination of what it means for God to love a people and really what it means for us to love, but it is coupled, it is joined with this idea of absolute loyalty, of promise, of covenant. I will, it's a term that basically says of God, I will not stop loving you. I will be consistent in this. I will not break. I will not fatigue. I will not in any way change or, or, or love more or less or whatever. I will be constant. I have made a covenant with the people and I will be constant in love to fulfill it. And David, therefore, is again basing his appeal on this covenant relationship that he still knew that he had with the Lord. Not because he was so great, 
He obviously wasn't. But because God never changes, never backs away from his promises and his covenant. And then the third word that is used here is translated in verse 2, excuse me, still in verse 1, still in verse 1, I'm sorry. There's the first, according to your steadfast love. Here comes another prayer. But according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Abundant mercy. This, this is the word that stresses a compassionate feeling. There are times in the New Testament when Jesus encounters a situation and, and a Greek word in that case is used that speaks about a kind of an inner turmoil, you see, when you're looking upon a situation that just evokes from you uh, heart, we, we use all kinds of words, heart, it's heart-wrenching. It, it is, uh, I feel torn up inside. My heart is broken over this situation. It is that word. And what is interesting is that David clearly, he undoubtedly has that Old Testament Revelation of God's name to Moses from Exodus 35. It is, it is clear, it is burned, it is etched upon his heart, and it is his only hope that the God who spoke and revealed himself to Moses in what we know as Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8, is the God that he is appealing to. For let me remind you, this is the text where the Lord comes to Moses and he declares his name. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, and there it is, steadfast love and faithfulness, truth, keeping steadfast fast love for thousands and then this wonderful statement forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin david will ask be asking the lord uh, those are the three main terms th three main attributes of god he gives three images now in this uh, in these short verses about what he wants the Lord to do. what Not only what he wants the Lord to do, but what he is desperately in need of. And the first is in verse 1. It is translated to blot out. It's a term associated actually with writing. We, we think um, if we had an old ink pen or something like that and that left a little bit of ink um, excess ink we might take a napkin or something and blot you know tap it and blot it and then it's really a more severe term than that you're talking about in that day uh kind of uh, the type of writing they did it was almost more of a scraping tool that that something was written on a scroll on a parchment and it was wrong it needed correction and you had to do something more severe to scrape it down again and that's what David is saying. Lord, blot it out. It's a term associated with writing and books. Uh, wipe it away. This 
idea gets uh, illustrated again in Colossians 2 when Paul says, uh, Colossians 2 says that in Jesus' death, let me, let me turn there. Sorry, I thought I could do it from memory and I can't. But that is exactly, we have a record against us by nature of what we have said, of what we have thought, of what we have done. And Paul in writing uh, Colossians says this, he says, You who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There, Paul uses very similar, this idea of a document, a document loaded with all the evil and corruption and sin that I have committed. It's a document, and now Paul says, it doesn't use so much the idea of blotting out as David is, but it's the idea of taking it and, as it were, nailing it there on the cross where Jesus died, that he has taken it away. David is saying something quite similar. The second image that he gives is wash me from verse 2. Wash me thoroughly. It's a laundry term. That would have been a very difficult task in that day. They didn't exactly have, you know, top loading, front loading, electrical machines like that. It would have been a much more difficult process for a woman probably to to beat on the fabric, maybe break up some of the stains, apply a few things. Maybe you're at a river or something like that. A difficult process. But he's David, you, but you see you see how David is seeing himself. He's seeing himself as that mud stain, that that dirty, that filthy garment that is in desperate need of being cleansed again. The third image he uses is from the priestly sacrificial system, and it is in the term, and cleanse me, verse 2. Cleanse me, a priestly word from the sacrificial system. It's the idea, declare me clean, O Lord. I'm unclean. I'm not able to go into the temple precincts. I'm not able to worship your right. I am separated from you. Cleanse me. Declare me clean. It's like, it's the similar term for the cleansing of the leper in Leviticus. The leper was that outcast of society. And David is praying, Lord, I am that man, but you... Would you please cleanse me? And so I think our application from this, I hope you hear good news in this. The God of mercy and compassion and truth and steadfast covenant love has not changed. Here is the basis, the foundation upon which we appeal for our forgiveness. We do not come with some type of, well, 
Yes, Lord, I sinned at 10, but did you see what I did at 11 and 11.30 and trying to somehow earn your way back? Not at all. This is the basis. Well, main point two, then we move to David's confession. A confession of sin from one now, David, who better understands sin, much better understands sin. And by the way, this, this portion of this psalm and this sermon, we stand in radical difference from our culture and our society. I wonder when the last time is that you have heard any serious talk on some type of radio show or newscast or whatever that is actually using the language of sin. I looked up, I told some of the elders before morning worship, we had a moment to talk and I said, I looked up an article, I think it was in uh, Psychology Today or some magazine, I was trying to find just a contemporary um, discussion of these things. And I did find an, an article it's too lengthy to get involved with, but the title I thought was interesting. Someone had written an article, and the title of it was Silencing the Inner Critic. Who is the inner critic? Do you know that as your conscience, something that God has given you? The conscience that says, this was good, this was not. And it was an article about, well, you can, you, you see, you can do this method or you can try this practice. You can talk to yourself this way. The world has no real concept of sin and evil. But let's look at how David responds now. There are actually four words that speak now about his sin. The first word that I'll mention is in verses 1 and 3. It is the word translated in English here, transgressions. He says uh, concerning his transgressions, blot out my transgressions. Well, what is this? This was a Hebrew word that spoke about rebellious acts. It was sometimes used in military uprisings. You can picture, here's the, the sovereign over a, a region and some portion of his region, what do they do? Well, they don't like him anymore and so they rebel. They rise up. <clears throat> they try to throw off his authority. And that's the concept behind this word. And that's precisely what David had done. And that's precisely what you and I do in our sin. We rebel against a rightful sovereign. There is a link between Psalm 50 and Psalm 51. The last time we were here, we were in Psalm 50. And it was a courtroom case where the sovereign king and judge was calling his people to appear before him. What's the rightful response? That's what we're dealing with right now. The only rightful response to this great King of Kings and Lord of Lords is David's because it is what our sin is, a rising up in rebellion. The second term is the term translated iniquity. And it is used in verses 2, 5, and 9. And it's a word that means to bend 
or twist and you get the concepts of distortion, of inner twistedness. Uh, and if you think about what sin does, is that not what happens? That your life gets distorted. Your situations get twisted and complex. You are not what you were made to be. You are going down a wrong path. The third, which is the more common that's used in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 9, is simply the word sin. But it is the word, its basic meaning is that of missing the mark or the goal or the way. And did not David do, do that? He was missing the mark of what it was to be a man in Israel. He was missing the mark of what it certainly meant to be a king in Israel in that position. I so much appreciate Alexander McLaren. Listen to this quote. Every sin is a blunder as well as a crime, and that for two reasons. Because first, God has made us for himself, and to take anything besides for our life's end, that is our life's goal or purpose, or our heart's portion is to divert ourselves from our true destiny. Remember, missing the mark. And then secondly, that being so, every attempt to win satisfaction or delight by such a course of sin is and must be a failure. I thought that was a wonderful reminder to me. Sin misses the aim if we think of our proper goal. Sin misses its own aim of happiness. Is that not what temptation is and what your sin tries to promise you? You'll be happier if you do this, if you say this, if you go here. It can't produce that because you are not designed that way. A man, McLaren says, a man never gets what he hoped for by doing wrong. Or if he seems to do so, he gets something more that spoils it all. And the last word is used one time, verse 4. It is the word evil. Done what is evil evil in your sight, something bad, something malignant, something causing pain and misery. There's a whole vocabulary for sin in the Bible. I have offended a holy God. And I want us to see here that David does not merely generalize here. And we can't either. We cannot take our own sins in just some great mass. But it, it is right for us to take the time to see them in their separateness. And then, of course, yes, we must lament before God not only for our many sins, but our sin that it comes from within us. Look at David's, just, just further along, because when we do this, when I'm doing this, what I'm trying to point out is David is doing this rightly. 
He stands as a teaching example for us in our lives. Look at his personal ownership of his sin. In the opening two or three verses, five times you have some form of me, my, I. David is clearly saying before God, I did it. I was the one that was a wrong. I have done the deed. And we need to be the same way. To remember that the deed is mine. And we need to remember, even as Paul said, that every one of us will give account of himself unto God. My deeds. And we need to look at his understanding of the seriousness of his sin. Several things. Verse 3. Remember, previously he had gone nearly a year repressing this sin, denying this sin. And now he cannot really get it out of his mind. He says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. The weight is there. Um, I think, can't help but think about Sterling, our uh, elder, preaching or teaching this morning Sunday school from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim had what on his back? He had a heavy burden. And David here in this psalm is feeling that. He understands his sin is before him. His sin, secondly, is not only a weight upon him, but his sin is against God. This verse has sometimes been misunderstood against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. People think, well, what about sin against Bathsheba? What about sin against Uriah? What about sin against David's family? Those are true. They existed. But be compared to before God, David is rightly seen in this moment that ultimately what he has done is issue an attack against the God of heaven and earth. He has rebelled against him. He has been treasonous before God. One person said that if we had our way, we would dethrone God if we could and place ourselves there. And that is the essence of sin. Sin, our shorter catechism says, is a want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. David has broken easily the sixth through the tenth commandments easily, if not really more. He vindicates God in the second half of verse 4 so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Matter of fact, Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, precisely in a similar context. God is just, and David is saying that. That's exactly what David is saying. And you want to hear in these words not only that God is just, to punish sinners. But David on the other side, you see, very important. He's making no defense. He is not trying to escape. He is offering no self-justification. He is not saying any excuses. You know, the classic case is Adam in the garden. Well, the woman you gave me, that 
You hear none of that from David. He is not blaming others. He is basically saying, God, you would be just to damn me to hell. You are right. David is concerned in his confession to tell everyone that God was in the right all along, that God's judgment was true and just, and that the Almighty is blameless in this. He speaks of inborn corruption. Now, this is interesting. Well, another important verse where he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. There's nothing here against sexual conduct. There's nothing here certainly against his mother. David's point is simply this. His very being, and we need to say, you see, by nature, yours and mine, our very being is shot through and through with the tendencies that produce the fruits of adultery and murder, greed, all manner of sin, as far back as David can look, even to conception, he sees his life as sinful. He has this constitutional propensity to sin that gets the theological term original sin. But there's an application here. I don't want to just be making observations. Do you, do you and do I own our sin in this way. It's possible to know the catechism answers, to know things from the scriptures. In other words, it's possible to have high theological, mental understanding of sin. But in experience, how we think about ourselves to be very low, to be very, you might say, soft, on ourselves. David is not. He is not at all. Well, we need to get to some good news. Uh, He has appealed to God based on God's character. He has made confession. And the main point three, I'm calling this faith, uh, faith for forgiveness, faith believing in God alone for salvation. And, and there's something audacious here about his faith. But he cannot save himself. Where can he go? He can go to no other person, no other religion, no other education, no other place. Uh, he can only go to the God he has offended. The very same God he has offended is the God that David's whole hope rests on for forgiveness. What I thought was interesting in my study on this, Psalm 130 actually makes a statement that God forgives. Uh, Psalm 130 verses 34, three, verses 3 and 4 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Psalm 32, another psalm of David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's interesting that Psalm 51 doesn't seem, in most English translations, does not seem to make quite such a clear statement as that. But I think... uh, 
what, as I was studying this, one person, I think, rightly picked up on a different, the different tense of the Hebrew verbs that are used in verses, the second half of verse 6 through verse 8. Those verses can be translated very legitimately this way. And as a matter of fact, one of the early English translators, Coverdale, in his um, work for the um, Episcopal Church, translates them this way. He puts them as uh, really a future promise, a future uh, truth that David will experience. I read them from Coverdale. He says, But lo, thou requirest truth in the inward parts, first part of verse 6, and shalt make me to understand wisdom secretly. Verse 7, You shall purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You shall wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You shall make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. And then rightly, verse 9 ends our section with a final plea for God's forgiving work in his life. Hide your face from my sins. And once again, the image of blotting out. Blot out, but I think a key word there is all. Blot out all my iniquities. John Owen, in a wonderful and simple statement, says this. There is not the least encouragement to a sinner to deal with God without the discovery of forgiveness in God. There is not the least encouragement for a sinner to deal with God without the discovery of forgiveness in God. You try to go to this God just based on his wisdom, based on his holiness, based on his wrath, based on his power. No, you would run the other way. You would try, as the people in Revelation are described, to go into mountains and caves and ask them to fall on you, to cover you from the wrath of the Lamb. But is it not grand news, greatest of all news, that there is forgiveness with God? David makes his appeal on that basis, and we do the same thing. And we do so now. A wonderful combination. We do so now looking back. Do you know that you remember that David is actually an example for New Testament Gentile Christians to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have his righteousness applied to them by faith alone in Romans chapter 4? David is used as a an example of that because 
he practiced that. He, he was graciously saved by God. God gave him the ability to do that. We do the same thing. And this table stands as a testimony not devised by humans, but by Christ's own institution. Remember me this way. Do this in remembrance of me. He testifies and has testified not only by his teaching, not only by his actions that are recorded in the Gospels, but by his death and burial and resurrection. He testifies that there is forgiveness in God for all your iniquities, your transgressions, your sins, and your evils. You must simply ask. You must ask earnestly and sincerely. And when we ask, we have the wonderful truth sent immediately to us, the wonderful message sent immediately to us. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, thank you for this truth, this man, this king. Oh, how it reminds us that none are too high to fall. None are too privileged to be removed from the temptation and sin. Let us take heed lest we fall. And Lord, would by the power of your Holy Spirit, would he keep fresh in our minds, not just our sins. We need that. We need the knowledge. We need the recognition of the seriousness of it. But not just that. But would he also have his full ministry of shining the spotlight in our minds upon the person and work of Jesus the Christ, our Savior. Be with us in the singing of this hymn of preparation and in the preparation for the, your meal. We make it our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.